All right. Picture this. You are 29 years old. You're single, looking for somebody, but not really sold on what your what the prospects are around you. You're going home for, let's say, Thanksgiving or Christmas, and your aunts and uncles, your mom and dads, your grandmas and grandpas, ask that, that, that classic question. So, are you seeing anybody? For all those at home that are experiencing a fight or flight response to that scenario, this might just be the episode for you to tune into. Today, we had the expert on, Dr. Yuthika Gurme from Simon Fraser University, and she talks all things single life and relationships. So we talk about whether or not people in relationships are more physically or emotionally well off than those that are single. We talk about the prevalence of how many single people actually enjoy being single versus single people that don't want to be single anymore, right? Who are searching for those partners. Uh, And a really interesting conversation about the gender differences and stigma associated with being single as you age, right? And you can think of you know, the George Clooney's, you know, the, the bachelors that are the men that are, you know, single and looking at the age of 30, they ver- get very different treatment than women that are 30 uh, and wanting to have kids and are single, right? So, so we talk a lot about that uh, and we break down a lot of things related to, you know, support systems and how single people have very unique support systems and social networks compared to individuals that are in couples and how sometimes couples can kind of almost put the blinders on and, and avoid other people around them and just focus on the support that they're getting from that one person, right? And, and you can see all the issues that are related to that and or the possible strengths of that as well. Uh, lots of other things that we talk about. We talk about, you know, what single people are doing to make themselves better, or worse in their future relationships, the benefits of just breaking up already. Sometimes relationships must die. And then we talk at the end of the episode about possible dating red flags uh, when you're single and what things you could be looking for. Please do enjoy this episode. And if you haven't already followed us on Instagram or Twitter, we are at BrainBuzzPod. We're trying to push out new content all the time. So please do check that out for new episodes, new content, and awesome research-related stuff uh, that you might find interesting. There's a touch of just microphone scratching in the background of Yutika's voice a little bit throughout the episode, so please do bear in mind that I try my best to take it out, uh, but sometimes you can't do everything. Uh, regardless, enjoy the episode. Cheers. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Drake. And today we have an interesting guest, someone that's kind of combative in a, in a sense to what I'm doing within close relationships, but it's really not combative. It's actually <laughs> quite, uh, you know, it's synergistic. Dr. Yuthika Gurme, thank you for coming on. You you are someone that I've been trying to get on for years now, and I'm so glad that you finally came on. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for inviting me, Drake. Um, I try and play hard to get just to uh, it, it, hopefully it makes people think that my work is interesting <laughs> you're playing all the single this is like the single card right you gotta yes. be hard to get to get the good relationships i get it i get all it. the all the like shitty stereotypes that we should not be following yeah you just you just use it as a researcher i get it it's, it's like drawing more people in and i'm excited to hear your stuff you got so so you got you do some really cool work within close relationships um, and I was first introduced to your work when we were talking about single 
singlehood and people that are single, um, but you also do work within relationships and support. So, so tell us a little bit about what you do and, and how you kind of got into this, this work within close relationships and single people. Mm. Yeah. So my journey into relationship science really began as an undergraduate student that was very passionate about doing clinical psychology, like all undergraduate psychology students. Um, but actually, I, I kind of had this moment where I was taking a close relationships course, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I thought it was so fascinating that romantic relationships and close relationships can be the absolute best thing for us, but also at the same time, the absolute worst. And it was this interesting paradox about relationships that really started to get me thinking about, you know, when and under what context are relationships good and bad. Um, and that really drove a lot of my research um, that has focused on the costs and benefits of providing social support and trying to be a supportive partner, trying to foster security in relationships, all this really good stuff that we know helps relationships be healthy. But I kind of also got into this side project later in my PhD to take a bit of a step back and think a little bit more broadly about relationships and the costs and benefits associated with them. Um, and that's kind of what led me to examining some differences between individuals who are coupled versus single. Um, and I had a paper in 2016 that kind of asked this question of, you know, like under what context are relationships versus singlehood good versus bad? Um, and then, you know, in that paper, I found evidence in a, using a nationally representative sample of nearly 4,000 Kiwis um, that single individuals can actually be just as happy as people in relationships um, if they're high in avoidance social goals. So if they want to avoid conflict and disagreements and all this kind of shitty stuff that is inevitable when we are involved in a close and intimate relationship, mm -hmm. when they get an opportunity to you know, um, avoid some of that turmoil, then single individuals are actually very happy. And that sort of has was sort of the jumpstart to a whole other research program on singlehood. Especially as a, a relationship researcher and from what my experience within it, it, there hasn't been many people looking at single individuals. It's, it's mainly looking at, you know, these intimate, close relationships like your partner um, and seeing how they benefit your health. But your work is some of the few researchers that I've ever seen looking at how single people might actually match up against it. It's just assumed that people in close relationships are doing better in all aspects, right? Yeah. And I, it's interesting because if you take a look at the historical research on that's compared relationship status um, to well-being and health outcomes, a lot of that work basically just compared people who are married versus single. And Time and time again, you find this work replicated cross-culturally. It's been replicated in, in huge meta-analyses. I've replicated it time and time again in my own work, is that there is this main effect of relationship status on well-being, that people who are coupled tend to report higher subjective well-being, life satisfaction. Um, other people have found differential health outcomes as well compared to single people. But here's what's problematic is that all the research found that that focused on that kind of just stopped after that. They didn't ask why those differences 
exist. They assumed it's because, well, single people don't have a partner, so they don't get all the support benefits. They don't get all the companionship, the love, all this like lovely stuff that relationships offer. And they, I think scholars and lay people have often you know, taken a very deficit perspective on singlehood. And I think that's when it got problematic because it's important to ask why. Why is it that we get this main effect that some single individuals, at least on average, tend to report worse well-being outcomes? And that's sort of where some of my research is kind of trying to tease apart um, these effects and try to reconcile these inconsistencies because other research also suggests that single individuals are actually thriving right so um, and you know uh, Bella DePolo talks about this a lot about solo living and how single individuals are doing great and how they have amazing friendships and amazing relationships with close family um, they have autonomy you know they, all this great stuff so um, yeah, so I think it's important to kind of move away from that deficit perspective and kind of challenge um, or at least I try and challenge that perspective and try to understand, you know, it's not that single individuals are always unhappy. There are going to be certain contexts in which single individuals thrive. What are those contexts? And there are going to be certain contexts in which single individuals struggle. What are those contexts? And when you think about it that way, that's not any different from the more classic relationship science, right? Like when we think about relationships, no one says relationships are always great right? There are going to be conditions in which relationships are great, like when we have a supportive partner, like when we feel really secure. But there are also going to be contexts in which relationships are really challenging, right? Like when partners make us feel insecure, when they're unsupportive, when there's maybe high conflict, whatever. So I think it's important to consider that it's not the relationship status per se, that drives these well-being effects, but it's likely the condition, the interpersonal, you know, context in which people are embedded in, that's important to understand because that's probably going to help, you know, tell us why people struggle or thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's just like, it strikes me that, you know, it's, we do, we do kind of package single people into this one group where it's like, oh, you don't want to be single, I'm sure, right? Like, you're probably just looking for a good relationship. Yes. I'm curious with your work, how many people are like happily single and don't want to be in relationships? Because mm. that's probably a very different population that people that are like seeking relationships that are single, right? Yes. And, you know, I think there's, I mean, there's two things here. One is that there's likely individuals who are, who choose to be single for their entire lifespan. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the prevalence of that, I, from, from what I've sort of read in the research, I would say that that's probably like five to 10% of the population. Okay. Um, I think it was probably closer to 5% a while ago. And I think now the prevalence of it, is starting to increase. Mm. Um, but so, so there's sort of like that uh, group of singles. Um, and then there's also, I think a group of singles who may eventually want to be in a relationship but right now they're actually you know quite happy being single it allows them to focus on themselves their careers their personal goals aspirations they don't want to be tied down to a relationship and you know things like that um that's just obviously one like example there yeah. may be other other reasons that people choose to be single but mm -hmm. um and i think the prevalence of that group is is probably quite high Mm. Um, and I do think, yeah, I mean, it's dangerous to assume that all single people want to be in a relationship. 
Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. You know, like I think that basically you do you should be the message. <laughs> if you're a single person and you want to be in a relationship, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think we need to be careful about stereotypes that kind of make people who are in that situation seem like they're desperate or that they need someone, you know, a lot of us are in relationships. A lot of us want to be in relationships. In fact, 90% of us will at some point in our life be in a committed relationship or relationships. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think if that's what people want, if that's an important goal, then absolutely they should strive for it. Um, and then there's going to be single people who are like, yeah, eventually, but right now I'm really happy, right? And I think that's also worth um, thinking about and and kind of investigating, okay, well, how are they happy? Like, what are these single individuals doing that makes their singlehood experiences really fulfilling? Um, and I think that that would be fascinating to understand because it may help people who want to be in a relationship and are struggling to find the right person or to maintain a certain relationship may actually help those individuals be okay in their singlehood moment, you right. know, in while they're waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, that's the worst thing, right? Is, is if you want to be in a relationship and you're, you're single and you're experiencing negative feelings about that, because um, that may get in the way, right? Like you think about um, like Stephanie Spielman and Jeff McDonald's work on fears of being single. And we know that if, if you're a single person that has a fear of being single, you're going to try and just date anybody. You're going to reduce your standards and you're going to settle for less. So we don't want that, right? Um, and I think it would be great to kind of figure out as scholars, how can we um, promote happiness when people are single so that they make the right dating decisions? You know, they they're okay, you know, in their own skin, being single in that moment. And that when the right person comes along, or when the right time comes along that they want to be in a relationship, they're making good decisions about who they're dating and who they want to, you know, commit to. Let's talk about these single people, because there's so much variation within single people. What are the single people that are thriving, doing differently than the ones that are not thriving within singlehood? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, to be honest, I don't have all the answers. And I think yeah. there's so much research to be done on this. But I can point to a few variables, right? Like, um, there's, there's work, um, you know, like, so for example, some of my own work shows that people who want to avoid conflict and disagreements and things yeah. like that, they're very happy being single, which suggests that, you know, people who have good relationships, not just romantic ones, but good relationships with other close others, right? Like with friends and family, that's going to be an important factor. Um, there is a team uh, in Toronto who have been doing all this work, Eubin Park and Jeff McDonald, Emily Impit. They had a paper out showing that uh, when single people have high quality relationships with their friends and family, that it actually, you know, boosts their life satisfaction. Um, so I do think that that's important. Um, some of my own recent work suggests that one of the reasons that single people experience low well-being is because they feel unsupported and they feel like they're stigmatized. Um, and actually, when you're single, it's kind of this unique thing that both of those sources 
um, are from the same people, right? Like the friends that you're turning to for support are also the ones that are not inviting you to the party because, oh, it's all couples. I didn't think you want to be there. And, you know, the parent that you want to call and ask about something important is also the one saying, well, have you found anyone yet? You know, time is ticking. You're like, when are you going to settle down? Um, so I think like singleism, which is some, like it's a term that Bella DiPolo um, kind of started, but it, I think singlehood is really unique in that sense because the isms come from our close network. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a, it can be, it can feel different to other types of discrimination. Not always, I'm not saying this is always the case, but you know, when you're a single person, I think, your other close relationships are still really valid and really important and they have to be in a good place to help you kind of get the best uh, out of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but if those are the exact same people that are excluding you and pitying you and making you feel inferior, then that's not a good situation. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah. With, with this, you think, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, there must be gender differences here. I'm thinking of like stigma and how stigma affects people especially you saying like, have you gotten a boyfriend yet? Or have you gotten a girlfriend yet? Are there differences? I'm sure there's differences for women depending on their age yeah. compared to men, right? Like because of the biological time bomb, that is, you know, time bomb, yeah. <laughs> I know you just had, a, had another child recently, but you know, it's like, you know, having children is a big concern for women. And I think the the time contingency is a big difference for women and men. Um, yeah. When it comes to being single and that that stigma, I'm sure, might be amplified for women. Yeah, um, I, I get this question every time I talk about this topic. Um, and it's really interesting. I have never found any consistent gender differences in my own work. But that doesn't mean that there aren't any. Um, from my understanding of the, the literature, there's a lot of qualitative work um, of, especially women, um, talking about the different kind of like stigma associated and attached to to them um especially if they're like over 30 um like this i think it's in china they talk about like the leftover woman they're like a burden right like oh we have this like daughter who's unmarried what are we going to do with her um and so and and it's not just in eastern cultures i think that have that and carry some of that sentiment i think that's there um and i think a lot of women in their 30s and plus would probably tell you that they've had people comment about these kind of things and felt the pressure put on them to to find a partner um and i think that exists in a way that's different for men right like if you think about portrayals of single people in the media it's like it's always the Bridget Jones, like, you know, the female singleton is always like the Bridget Jones. She's desperate for love and is like willing to do anything. Whereas the single man is always kind of portrayed as like, oh, well, he's the like eligible bachelor, the George Clooney of like all men. Um, all the ladies want him, but he's, you know, he can't be tamed. Um, it, it, it's like, very interesting. And it's, it, I mean, obviously it's super problematic. Um, but I mean, I think this is a really fruitful area for research. Um, but what we do know, funnily enough, is that men actually do better in relationships compared to women. Um, because, uh, I mean, one paper that I can think of was um, by Strong et al. And they found that one of the reasons that men do better in relationships compared to women is because social support 
men's key source of social support tend to come from their partner. Um, whereas I think women are good at, you know, finding very different, varied sources of support. They have their girlfriends and they'll turn to their mom and their sisters and um, things like that. And I, and to be clear, I'm not saying that those are biological differences between men and women. I think that these are sort of, you know, how it's like how uh, gender gets socially constructed, but those effects do exist. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, women get really bashed for being single, but they're actually better <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then they don't actually benefit that much from committed relationships because all of a sudden they have the burden of having to basically look after, um, yeah. you know, all this all this double burden, like the emotional burden that women that's placed on women while they're working and taking care of kids and all that kind of stuff. But, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. It, it's funny because, you know, you say that women have more people that they go to. Everybody prefers to go to women for support. <laughs> you know, like it's 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 the men in these relationships it's also the women if they're asked you know who would you like who gives you best support it's usually other women that are giving the better support right yeah i'm pretty sure there's papers that that demonstrate that women are much more skilled yes. at being support providers and i think mm -hmm. part of that you know and, and these are some other ideas that i've been kind of thinking about in my own research is this idea of like flexibility and i think being a good supporter is understanding that it's not a one-size-fits-all model yeah. that you really have to like stop, listen, take into account what the recipient is needing in that moment, and mm -hmm. then provide support in adaptive and flexible ways. Mm -hmm. um, and for whatever reason, it seems that women are kind of equipped a little bit better um, to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, definitely, there's lots of cultural and, you know, nurturing things going on that are kind of oh, 100%. allowing women to speak more to each other openly, right, about their feelings and process. 100%. I, I don't think that, like, you know, first of all, these are all average effects. Yeah. But also, it's very much how we've been taught to, mm -hmm. yeah, to regulate our own emotions and then to help regulate other people and their emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not to, this is not to say that men can't be good support providers and things like that, but, um, but yeah, it's very much just like how we learn, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and how it's modeled to us and all sorts of things. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I just recently, I mean, we're going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I just <laughs> recently read a paper by uh, Guy Bodeman that was talking about sex differences and how we respond during stress. And you know, another example is that uh, they found that men were much worse at providing a good support whenever their partner was showing uh, higher levels of emotion, mm. um, whereas women were able to adapt and do fine whenever their male partners had a higher emotion, yeah. they're able to support just as well. But men falter whenever, you know, the stress is high or the emotions are higher in their partners. Not to go too far into that whole rabbit hole. Um, but, you know, it's funny that men are men are generally considered to be more of like, you know, it's appealing to be single as a man, whereas women, it's not. Women are just going to be they're kind of getting shafted hard here on both ends where it's like there's stigma because you're single and then you're also not getting as much support generally from their man listen <laughs> you, as a woman i can tell you there's nothing that women can do that won't be uh, criticized yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. women in relationships get criticized for doing too much or for putting their man on a leash and having like too much relational power all these kinds of things and then when women are single it's like Ugh, why won't you like, you know, find someone and settle down? You're 
whole reason to live is to look after another person. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's, it's just like a lose-lose situation, unfortunately. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, so, so when you're with, with these single individuals, uh, let's get back to like figuring out, you know, the ones that are benefiting the most, is it just because they are getting the support that they would get with their partner is being replaced by other relationships like friendships and family, you said? Are there other things that like, um, coupled people are doing are that are they're doing worse in I guess like other like I, I think of people that are in relationships and the fact that you know your partner is your number one support usually is your number one person that you go to for support are they neglecting other like other family and friend members more than single people I imagine they would like that's my perspective at least yeah and I think the empirical research would support that so like there is research out there um, which I Sorry, whoever's research this is, but I can't come up with a reference right now. Um, but there is research suggesting that single individuals have larger social networks and that they also have better quality relationships with their family and their friends compared to coupled people. So I do think, and there's also actually um, research suggesting that when people enter relationships, their social network shrinks, which is really like interesting because you would think, you know, self-expansion theory for example, is a big theory in relationship science. And it would suggest, well, actually, one of the reasons that we get into relationships is so we can expand our resources, right? Like all of my partner's friends now are my friends. Um, But I think what happens, at least in early stages, and actually maybe even the later stages for different reasons, but um, people enter into relationships and they kind of just go into a little bubble. And I think we can all think of that friend who has like got into a relationship and it's like, oh. I've never seen him anywhere. (laughs) Where the fuck is Mike? Like, I haven't heard from him since he, like, hooked up with that chick. And yep. um, and then he kind of, like, emerges, like, a year later. And- After they broke up. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes then, sometimes, you know, sometimes relationships settle down and, you know, um, and then kind of people kind of are like, oh, I've neglected all these friends and they kind of come back um, to kind of rekindle uh, those other really important relationships. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think single individuals, they have a, a investment in maintaining their friendships and having good relationships with their family. And I don't think it's that they have more time. I think they just choose to, you know, commit to those relationships um, in a way that's a little bit more equal uh, across the board. Whereas I think once people get into relationships for, for whatever reason, and I don't know, maybe this is an adaptive thing because this actually helps solidify um, a romantic relationship in the beginning stages, but couples just kind of become like a unit and they kind of really focus on their relationship. Um, and and, the, and it's interesting, but it, I mean, it, to me, it kind of makes sense because the friendships that we have and the family relationships that we have, you know, we've had so much time to cultivate those relationships. Um, and so maybe there's some kind of like security there that even if I do kind of drop the ball on talking to my sister or reaching out to my friend and catching up, you know, for coffee or whatever, I know they're always going to be there because we have such long history. Um, and then a romantic partner comes along and it's like, okay, well, this person's a new person in my life. Not always, sometimes. And actually, I think there's some research suggesting often we're friends with our partners before, um, you know, th- them becoming um, an intimate partner. But um, yeah, I think there's some interesting sort of 
transitions that go along. Um, but, um, but I think we also don't know about, we don't know enough about friendships either, right? Like friendships also are sometimes in a way similar to romantic relationships because they also can kind of like come and go and we lose friends and we pick up new friends and yeah. yeah. The the hierarchy of, you know, best friends, good friends, great friends, acquaintances. There's so much work to be done in that. I, I think it's such a cool line of work uh, yes. within a relationship research that really hasn't been explored enough. It's it's such a cool area. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is, I mean, this is one of the things that I'm excited about for relationship science looking ahead, because I think for such a long time, relationship science fought really hard to highlight the importance of romantic relationships and that love is not just this like you know airy fairy concept that it's it, it's real it has important physical psychological physiological outcomes yeah. um, but we focused so much on romantic relationships that we've sort of neglected other other close relationships like friendships like family you know parent-child relationships things like that mm-hmm. um, sibling relationships but also part of that the circle of I don't I want to say life but <laughs> it's kind of like in a way it's a, a circle of, of relationship life and actually I this is how I teach my close relationships courses is that singlehood is an important piece of that puzzle we are all single we're all born single we're all single at some point in our lives some of us choose to remain that way for the for all of our life some of us choose to enter relationships and then exit them where we find ourselves single again and then maybe enter another relationship and then on, you know, going on and on. But it seems strange that we've sort of neglected that piece of the puzzle. We don't know anything about those experiences. And it's so important because the mental state that we're in as a single person, and I alluded, this, alluded to this before, but the mental state that we're in as a single person really should theoretically dictate the decision-making that we're making when we enter into a relationship and perhaps even how we cope when a relationship ends and we find ourselves single again. So I think it is really important to, to understand all of those pieces. And I think that's becoming more and more clear now. And I think relationship science in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see a huge hopefully an expansion of work on friendships, work on other types of important relationships, work on consensual non-monogamy, work on singlehood and all of these other important things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, within the single individuals, there's, is there something that the single people are doing to prepare themselves for relationships that will then succeed, right? So like, Single individuals, I think of like the idea between individualistic cultures and collectivistic cultures, right? Where the focus may be more in North America on, you know, expanding yourself when you're single and making sure that you're looking after number one. Does that kind of idea or that kind of thought whenever you're thinking, okay, what's best for me at all times? Is Could that be almost self-defeating if you're trying to get into relationships and you've set yourself up to always be thinking about yourself in a way? Or putting yourself yeah. first. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, that, you know, that's such a great question because I think as a relationship scientist, I would say, yeah, that's a bad idea because <laughs> everything about relationships is always other focused, right? And there's a lot of research to suggest that this is like number one rule for relationship maintenance is, you know, thinking about others, being more accommodating, um, 
being able to compromise, being able to put other people's needs, you know, ahead. not necessarily ahead of your own, but really kind of, in, yeah, being in line with them, really kind of understanding other people's needs. So in some sense, like, yeah, there is like, I think a lot of evidence to suggest that maybe that's a good approach, even when you're single and looking to date other people. But on the singlehood side of like the research and the perspectives that are coming there, I think it's also important to be authentic and the, and also, you know, this putting yourself first kind of idea. I think there's some, like there's something important there too, right? Because you also don't, I think it's a slippery slope if you are dating for other people, right? Then it becomes like, I'm doing this for that person instead of I'm doing this for me. And you don't want that to become, I don't know, like it's almost like you're dating for the sake of dating and you're, it's more like the idea of a relationship that becomes motivating as opposed to that person. And what is it about that person? Well, often it's that that person aligns with yourself and your interests and your passions and your life goals, et cetera, et cetera. So in some sense, like, to kind of play devil's advocate with myself, my single kind of perspective or singlehood perspective would suggest that there's actually, there may be some, there may be actually something really positive about being really clear and having clarity about who you are and what are the reasons that you are looking to right. date and looking to be in a or, you know, relationship. And those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. So No. Yeah. I think it's, it's a really, it's an interesting idea where you can kind of have, an individual that's really focused on themselves to the point where they're super, super independent and like <laughs> they're still in a relationship, even though everything's about them. And then you have this like overly dependent individual that's getting into relationships to please the person and not put themselves, you know, not even worry about their own needs. And then there's this kind of fine line where it's like, okay, there's some interdependence, right? Yes. It's I'm, I'm worried about my well-being. I'm worried about my partner's well-being and how can we make this work? And I think that that's kind of an interesting link between like what, some some researchers have looked at it as like relationship focused coping, right? So like trying yes. to improve their relationship over like individual coping methods and things like that. As we've been talking about, you know, there's variance within these single individuals, just like there's variance between people that are in relationships, right? Some people are doing things really well. Yeah. <laughs> some people are doing them really poorly. Yeah. And there's a lot of reflection because you have to think about what is good for you. And I think a lot of therapy really focuses on like, especially within couples is like, what do you, what are your needs? how does your partner meet those needs and how are you meeting your partner's needs? Yeah. Uh, and if you're just thinking about your needs, I, you're not you know, going to get very far. <laughs> the, the relationship is not the, the issue at that point. Right? It's not, it's not really the focus. And I think all of those viewpoints are so important because, and I don't know, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but like not all relationships are worth saving. Oh, absolutely. You know? Like absolutely. I think we have to kind of be okay with this, and, you know, and sit with this that like, if I'm like, this could be a really good relationship for a lot of reasons, but maybe there are some really key issues that we as a couple cannot move forward on. Maybe it's something about the way we communicate. Maybe it's just the way like they regulate versus how I regulate. And, you know, it doesn't seem to vibe very well. Mm -hmm. And that it's perfectly fine to call yeah. it and mm -hmm. be like, you know what? I think the best thing that we could do for each other 
is to end this relationship. And yeah, basically like find someone else because, you know, and um, like I recently wrote a a chapter with a colleague, um, Dr. Jessica Maxwell, and we covered this because the previous version of this chapter kind of talked about the goals of relationships, right? Like to find a relationship, to understand people, and then how do you maintain them? And then we added this fourth section of dissolving relationships, because I think that's also a goal. Like Mm -hmm. it has to be adaptive to not just like if we all married or committed in a long-term relationship with with the first person we ever dated a lot of us would be very unhappy right now right like that's not actually the the point um and i think and and honestly if you were that person like you're you're the envy like everyone loves you and hates you at the same time because you found your soulmate at 15 but you know a lot of us have to kind of go through that trial and error but that's important and it is adaptive to know when to call it and when Mm. to walk away yeah Um, and i think that if the more we get comfortable with singlehood the more we get comfortable with this idea and you know when you think about it that way relationship science and singlehood science are two sides of the same coin you can't understand one without understanding the other Um, And they're both important because if people are afraid of singlehood and they're afraid of being marginalized and stigmatized for being single, then they're never going to leave a shitty relationship and they'll still be unhappy. Yeah. Right. Like Arguably worse than they would be, you know, feasibly worse than they would be if they were single. Yes. And there's research to support that. People who are unhappily married report worse health outcomes than people who are single. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not like I said. And I said this before, I'd say it again. It's kind of like my mantra. It's not about your relationship status per se. It's more about the context and the conditions that kind of you're in, that you're actually situated in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that's incredibly important um, to both research and to also kind of put out there for awareness purposes, you know, of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, it might have been Jessica Maxwell, Dr. Jess, Max, Jess Maxwell and uh, Dr. Jeff McDonald that I had five, six, seven, maybe even eight years ago. They were talking about uh, at a conference exactly that, that researchers that are doing close relationships don't ever consider breakups to be an optimal outcome. Yeah, I mean, it really, really could be. Right. And, and I think that, you know, we always are trying to focus on how can we improve these relationships? How can we, you know, f- improve relationship satisfaction, sexual satisfaction, all these things? And it's like sometimes it's broken and sometimes it should m- remain broken and just you sever those ties. But yeah, people hate to think of the fact that like, oh, they can't make things better and that, you know, no matter who it is, they can they can make it work. And sometimes it's just not that like if you're really thinking about a, a long term partnership, why would you expect that? you know, forcing a, like a triangular object yeah. into a circular hole is going to work, right? Like <laughs> yeah. sometimes it does and sometimes it's easy, but like that's not going to work like yeah. all the time, right? You have to like figure out like, oh, maybe one of us is a circle and the other one's like an oval and yeah, yeah. we can put in a little work and it, it'll work. Yeah. But yeah, if you're a circle and a triangle, <laughs> I don't think there's anything you can do. You know, you have to just kind of call it, just yeah. call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's that's a reasonable thing to to think. And I think that there's there's that is like kind of the three heads of this like whole thing is that, you know, singlehood relationships and breakups are all intertwined. And they're really important to kind of consider how you're going about these things, what you're learning from each of those, mm-hmm. those steps is really important because, you know, you could go through relationships because they don't want to be single. Right. And they're they're neglecting the singlehood and not learning from it, from what they need independently for for the next relationship where they'll they'll break up. Or they'll, they'll be in a relationship, they break up with that person, that next week they're in another relationship yeah. and they're creating the same issues, same problems, same communication issues, and, and it's not going to improve. 
Yeah. Whereas I think if people took the time to to be single and to learn from those experiences, be okay. And like you were saying, like put yourself first mm -hmm. um, and, and really kind of think about, you know, what are your needs? What are your goals? What are the things that you're good at and can offer in a relationship? What are the things that you're not so good at and, you know, require a little bit of like, you know, mm -hmm. meditation, yoga, self-retreat, whatever, <laughs> live, laugh, whatever that stuff is. But, um, you know, do, do that fun. stuff and then come back and, you know, um, yeah. And, and, yeah. And to be, to be honest, like, you know, a lot of this does put the onus on the individual. Sure, yeah. But relationships are also dyadic and, mm -hmm. you know, I also do think that there is, we have to kind of give a shout out to good partners too. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because sometimes, yeah, like sometimes you can be like, you know, super like not good at relationships <laughs> and then a, someone comes along that has the patience to kind of like put up with your shit and, mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of become a, a bit better over time. So I think, yeah, shout out to the good partners out there as well who are incredibly like secure and stable um, we need more people like you in, yeah. uh, in the world. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. So single people, let's, I'm going to put you through a scenario here. Quick, you think Is I, it your scenario? No, 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 no. no. Not single right now. Thank you. But, uh, but uh, I mean, definitely what was happening when I was single as well. And I see this a lot. Um, I was always interested when I started doing research in relationships and sexuality some eight, nine years ago was uh, we were interested in how people met and how they, you know, mm. how they, um, where they met and how quickly they had sex is essentially the research that we were right. looking at. And we yeah. were really curious in like looking at, this is before online dating was just ubiquitous with with how people dated. We thought that people that met online would be the, the quickest to have sex, but really it wasn't, it was people that were meeting at bars, which is you know, when you think about it. <laughs> Makes sense. No shit, right? <laughs> um, but I, but I, the one thing I think of every time like as a as a young person or as anybody now dating online dating is so so common and i think of these these online dates and how frequently um people will disclose to the person they're on a date with first date maybe um that all the flaws that were with their previous partners and i f i really do feel like there's a lot of neglect into taking that live, laugh, love approach, yeah. thinking about what, what you need to improve on your own off of that relationship. And I find that there's often, for me at least, it was kind of a red flag for, to hear people say all these issues with their partners, but never refer back to what they had done incorrectly. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to what your kind of, I don't know if it's experience, you know, your expertise, but what do you think about that? Is that is that really a red flag that they're blaming people? Or is it, again, it's probably contextual, but I think that there's there's definitely something in my head that's going off when I hear people blaming another partner. Well, you know, I, I will say as long as it's not like something super extreme, sure. right? Like, you know, there are some issues like IPV and things that I'm like, yeah, 100%, that's not, let's not do any victim blaming here. Yeah. But I think if it's kind of just like, day-to-day -day regular relationship issues that everybody kind of faces yeah relationships are dyadic you know and I, I I think it's unfair to just point fingers and be like oh yeah my exes are always this and that and, um that that to me seems unfair relationships take two and I think that if with anything if there's if there's something that your partner's doing that you're not happy with it's like, yeah, they may be being annoying by leaving their, like, socks right in front of the laundry hamper, but they can't read your mind. And I think we know that that's, that's never a good 
belief to have that that partners know what they're doing that annoys us so that we don't like so i think you if you're in a relationship if you also have a responsibility to communicate your needs and say like you know you're doing this thing and i find it annoying or irritating or it or upsetting or whatever it is um so i think that's that's on you you have to communicate that but also as a social support researcher i also think that as partners as good partners if we want to get like the a plus and the gold star and everything i think there's also a responsibility to see you know if there's something i can do to support you with that you know because sometimes when we have when everybody have things about themselves patterns bad patterns of behavior and stuff like that the reason that they're bad patterns of behavior is because we don't know how to help ourselves to get past that. And so I think sometimes it helps to have a partner who says, you know, I've noticed that every time we have a fight, you kind of just like get on your phone and you refuse to talk about it. I'll be honest, so step 1 communication, I find that upsetting. Step 2, is there something that we can do that could, you know, make that an easier discussion to have like if you would like space i can give you space and then we can come back and talk about it or is it or if there's something i'm doing that's triggering you please let me know so that we can work through this together and i think you know that's also really really important um so to get back to your kind of question and your scenario yeah i think if someone's just sitting there blaming another partner for all of their relationship flaws personally i would say that that is a red flag um <laughs> because i think you you always can do something to help and like you you can do both of those things and the relationship still end but at least you know you tried yeah yeah right? i find it's a fine line you think when it comes to disclosing what you did wrong in your relationships when you're on first dates with somebody you know <laughs> but like i feel like it would benefit both people in that scenario to be like yeah i could actually work on these or i'm working on these things and that's my perspective maybe people don't share that perspective i'd like to know what my listeners think about that because i want to improve the single experience as well yeah and it's funny because i mean if you think about dating you know i think we all have this i think we were brought up with this like fairy tale notion of what like dates look like and how that you know falling in love and we don't want to have to think about all the annoying things that people do right so we kind of don't have those discussions mm. early on we kind of like figure it out and learn about them along the way but i mean i i think that those are really important conversations to be had and i think that we would learn a lot and i don't know maybe we would get a little bit better at finding a more compatible partner like earlier you know like mm. instead of wasting time yeah. like 3 years into a relationship and you find out that what uh, whatever the issue is but yeah disclosing it on the second or third date like oh these are the things i didn't do very well versus like you know 5 months in you're like oh you're really bad at these <laughs> things yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah and because also people have different thresholds right like yeah. it's good to know that because you could do something that's kind of like kind of like a minor nuisance for one person but for another person it's like a deal breaker yeah so yeah that's all I'm really sure. relative and Yeah, I think yeah, it's it's really tricky to find the, the right time to like have those conversations and that probably, you know, that probably differs for some people they they really get into a really deep connection with someone, they feel they can have those discussions like the second or third date. 
for other people, it, it might be like, okay, maybe like a month or two in, and so we yeah. sit down and have these kind of discussions. But yeah, as long as you're yeah. having them, yeah, that's important. So, so you got, I don't want to take you, I don't want to take any more time from you. I know you're a busy woman. You've got a lot of kids that are, <laughs> that are really Yeah, I've got eager. like 20 kids just like running around in the background. I'm, I'm sure it feels that way at some point. Thank you so much, Yuthika. This was so fun. I feel like we could talk for hours, but I, I know we can't. I'd love to have you on another time if you have any uh, research out or any, want to have a chat sometime. This is, this is really fun. Absolutely. I had a really, really good time chatting with you as well, Drake. Yeah. Thank you so much. Everybody has been single once in their life. So this probably was applicable to you. Either you're single right now and there was a lot to reflect on, or you can think about the last time you were single, whether it was a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, or decades ago. If you really like the work that Uthika is doing, please do check her out on Twitter. Her handle is at Uthika Gurme, Y-U-T-H-I-K-A-G-I-R-M-E. She is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to relationship research and singlehood and really enjoyable to talk to, just a really nice person all around. If you're hopping over to Twitter to go add Uthika, you might as well add BrainBuzz at, at the same time. We're at BrainBuzzPod on Twitter and at BrainBuzzPod on Instagram. If you're not already following our social media, please do. You can go ahead and share it with friends while you're at it too. That might help us out a little bit. And if you're curious about what's coming up next, the episode in two weeks will be with Dr. Ashley Randall, actually a returning guest, with Gabe Leon, who co-authored the paper with Ashley Randall and several other co-authors that looked at psychological distress in couples during COVID-19 across 27 different countries. So they had an insane amount of data and they had some really cool insights onto how couples manage their stress during the peak spike of COVID-19 during March to July of 2020. Feels like a century ago. I'm sure you can reflect on what you were doing and how things were going. One thing is for sure that I can add is that I know I was insanely stressed and I'm sure you were too. So really cool findings from them coming up next episode uh, and lots of other cool episodes coming down the pipeline soon enough. Thanks again for listening to Brain Buzz Podcast and have an amazing day. Mwah.